Welcome to the show, everybody. My name is Eric Wright. I'm going to be your host for the Disco Posse Podcast. Today, I've got a really, really cool episode coming up with Paul Clayson. But before we get there, let's give a shout out and a thanks to all the fine folks that sponsor the podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our fine friends over at Veeam Software. If you go to vee.am forward slash Disco Posse, it gives you a chance to actually see all of the data protection needs that you need to fill. Uh, so please do check it out. Uh, I've been a longtime fan of anybody who's in the space and been involved in strong community ties. Uh, Veeam is fantastic for that. So everything you need for cloud data management, for data protection across your on-premises estate, for your cloud estate, for your SaaS platforms, and also congratulations to Veeam for the recent acquisition of Casting. Where now they are becoming the market leader in Kubernetes backup and data recovery. So check it out. Go to vee.am forward slash disco posse and find out more. The show is also brought to you by Velocity Closing. If you're at all involved in startup, in sales, in technical sales, in anything to do with messaging, one of the things you need to be able to do is better connect with your customers. I've struggled with call after call as a listener and as a deliverer with how to make sure that we can more effectively connect with people as a portion of conversation and really engage with them to create better technical sales opportunities. So if you go to velocityclosing.com, you can check out the four-step guide to delivering extraordinary software demos that win deals, authored by yours truly. You can check it out. This is years of experience brought together in a way that will engage with your customers and teach your technical sellers how to close deals because they actually connect and find out the problems that need to be filled and do it in a very personal way. So go to velocityclosing.com, check it out. You can download today as well as you're going to get access. If you go now and you buy the special, you're going to be able to get access to the ebook, the online uh, audiobook, as well as an online course, which is coming up very soon. So go over to velocityclosing.com. But with that, let's get to the good stuff. Today's episode is featuring Paul Clayson. Paul is the CEO of Agile PQ. They're doing fantastic stuff around solving the challenges of uh, data security for Internet of Things. So this is massive. It's a huge problem that's being solved, but Paul is so much more. In fact, you're going to hear incredible stories of how he got here, how he approaches business. Uh, tons of great lessons in here. Thank you. Hi, my name is Paul Clayson. I am the CEO of Agile PQ, and you're listening to the Disco Posse Podcast. Thank you very much, uh, Paul Clayson. I'm excited about what we're going to talk about today. Uh, I've been lucky enough to go over and really kind of go through a lot of your background, and you have such a, a storied background and impact on what you've done for our industry. And I say art like a lot of industries, and really, I, I just I love your ability to see opportunity for innovation. That's uh, these are big bites. So I thought the first thing we could do is introduce you to the audience. Let's talk about Agile PQ, where you're going and, and the challenges you're solving there. And then I, you know, we'll kind of delve into some of your history because there's just so much uh, really, really great stuff I'd love to explore. 
Happy to do that, uh, uh, and, and what an honor and a pleasure to be with you, and thank you for the invitation here. We, uh, Agile PQ is uh, an encryption software company, but it's specifically focused in, a, in an area <clears throat> that is wide open right now, and that is we are securing the smallest of IoT devices, and we can scale up from there all the way through the server and back. And what's really unique about what we do is not only can we secure all of that data in transit from any IoT device, we do it in a manner that will survive in a quantum computer era, which is predicted to be able to break the encryption that you have on your smartphone and that I have on mine uh, when quantum computers become mainstream in the next uh, few years. So we really do have a revolutionary product and we haven't found anyone else in the world that does what we do, what we do at this point. Well, it, I love that you, the phrasing that comes up throughout a lot of your, your materials uh, is this post-quantum idea. And it's, I, I've often been asked, you know, by especially, you know, folks that are sort of treat me as like a pundit of like, hey, you know, what's, what's the ideal use case for quantum? Where is it being used today? I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Like, where is, where is quantum today in general? Uh, and, you know, how... How soon do you see this being kind of a, a pervasive threat? Obviously, your team is is ahead of the curve to be ready for it, and that's where we have to be. But I would say that there's probably a lot of it that's already out there today. So I'd love to get your thoughts on on where we are with it. What we know is that uh, worldwide, globally, major superpowers and even other, uh, in some cases, third world countries are spending their own government funds to fuel the development of of quantum computers. Uh, in the case of, as an example, China, they're spending mm, roughly 10x the amount the United States is. But having said that, the United States is still deemed to be at the forefront of the development of quantum computers. Sometimes we don't know what we don't know. But, uh, but right now, <clears throat> it appears that quantum computers are able to operate with around 100 qubits in size. It will take about 6,500 qubits in size to break the, the encryption that's on your smartphone today. So it's a little ways off, but where the real disparity is in projections for the future of quantum is when that will actually happen. So some people will say that's not going to happen for 20 years. More and more these days, those are in the extreme minority. Some people say 15, some say 10. What we know in dealing with a vast number of people in governments, including our own government here in the US and others, is that quantum computers may be mainstream uh, and may reach those thresholds to be able to break existing encryption within a five-year time frame. Uh, so it's coming quite fast. And, and the reason this is important to take note of right now is because um, Let's say you were putting in a new IT network system in a corporation or someplace uh, in the world today. Those systems typically are built to last a minimum of 15 years. Well, if you put in place an IT system today and it's not post-quantum safe, and then all of a sudden uh, quantum computers become a reality, you're now going to have to change out your systems or put on addendums or bolt-on uh, new technology and so forth, all of which can be very troublesome when you're trying to play catch-up. So we encourage people get into the thinking process of post-quantum security today, not when you're behind the curve. 
One would say that in 1985, a lot of people thought they were going to be all good when it came to the Y2K problem. Like we, we knew the writing was on the wall, but we knew we had so much runway that it wasn't going to be a concern because they thought the systems would not outlive the time frame that they had in between them and this compelling event. And what we learned was that we, in fact, were very wrong on those time frames and the ability for people to ultimately build systems that were going to be, they were supposed to be faster, adaptive, replaced more often. In fact, they had this incredibly long tail. And so we were left holding a real painful problem. And that's a problem that we, we got through, you know, and, or we didn't hear the, the negative stories on. This is so much different because it's, that was like an event that had a very si simple, to a degree, finite use case. What you're going into and, and what your team is tackling is an exponentially more complex problem as it becomes available. Because the better, it, the, the faster it gets here, and then the more the data becomes to feed that machine, it ultimately will become faster and better. And truly, like that's the thing we always joke about exponential. This is an exponential effect. Only in quantum is there absolutely scientifically, by definition, an exponential capability because it has the ability inside its system to grow and increase its knowledge and, and learning at an exponential rate. Yeah, really, really well said and a good analogy to, to Y2K. Um, if we need evidence of why this becomes important, especially with regard to the ability to process data so fast on a quantum computer that it could break current encryption, um, we just need to look at what's happening globally right now among, in particular, superpowers. So right now we know for a fact that China is hacking into as much of our government and corporate and civic databases as they possibly can, and they're downloading all of the data that they possibly can, even if it's encrypted. Even if they can't read it today, they're downloading it, they're putting it in storage, so that the moment they have the ability to break that encryption, they now can read all of it. Uh, our country is doing the same thing. We have to do that to stay competitive. I mean, very literally, we are in a digital war uh, globally. Uh, the interesting thing is, is it's not just between superpowers. It also is between sometimes individual bad actors who want to access data and then sell it or use it in a manner to disrupt uh, societies or create havoc or, or um, uh, create problems for even citizens in countries. So it's a very serious problem and we have to look at this. And, and I think what is beginning to happen in the United States that it can't happen fast enough is the education level of everybody, and I'm talking everybody from an elementary education level all the way up to a PhD in digital security. Uh, we need to educate everybody about what we all need to do to secure our data and why it's important, and, uh, and especially with regard to business because of intellectual property and state secrets and all those kinds of things that need to be protected. Do you... What do you kind of see at that level right now as sort of the biggest risk to the, the people side of this innovation? Uh, do, you, do you feel that, is there like, is there a sector of, of systems, you know, 
education and like that level that's closer, uh, you know, is I like that you brought back that we ultimately need to go back to the elementary level and begin to make this, you know, pervasive as part of, of what we teach. Is there anybody you're seeing that is closer, at least in their understanding of the risk that we have in front of us? Um, unfortunately, no. Um, there <laughs> probably are little pockets, little things that are happening, but here's, here's an example. A Santa Fe group out of Santa Fe, New Mexico, who does all kinds of studies to assess corporate risk, uh, determined in a recent study that something around or less than 25% of all companies know how many IoT devices they have hooked up to their network system. Now stop and think about that. How do you secure an open IoT device in a network system when you don't even know it's connected to the system? And among those 25, that included a percentage of the companies that know some of the devices, but not all of them that are connected. Now, how does that happen? Well, if you're, uh, if you're on a manufacturing floor and you're using IoT devices for all kinds of things and you've got a maintenance supervisor who has the authority to take a a vibration sensor and hook it up to a motor to be able to determine whether a bearing or something is going out and they can do predictive maintenance. They then hook that up to the internet, but that device is never registered on a corporate level. There are not policies in place to allow for those kinds of devices to immediately become registered. They can track them, they can look at them, they can see through threat detection engines if they are being pinged or uh, if there's threats occurring. That gives us one example as to why there is such a wide open gap out there in, in things that are happening. We have seen examples recently this year of consumer devices like ring doorbells that have been hacked and, and uh, bad actors are talking to kids in their bedrooms. Uh, we have seen examples of all kinds of IoT devices. Recently there was a, it was humorous but not humorous, uh, example of a coffee maker that was hacked uh, in a house. Um, it's just very interesting to think about the fact that your smart thermostat could actually be a portal uh, into, in, into not only your personal data, but maybe could ride that upstream to a corporate database through your uh, own device, or could be used for what's called a distributed denial of service attack, a DDoS attack, using your IoT device, your thermostat, that could then be harnessed with a million other devices and focus that total computing power on shutting someone else down, creating some sort of, of illicit uh, attack. Those are things that are very real. The final thing that I'd say is uh, Microsoft in September of last year, 2019, announced that they were aware that millions um, of servers around the United States have been infiltrated by nation states and perhaps uh, small little kernels of clandestine and, 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 um, uh, and a code has been installed on those computers cannot be found and they're there to cause disruption in the event that there was ever a hot war. They could cause all kinds of confusion and concern and panic within the American people. They are also doing that to consumer devices. Uh, if you can shut somebody's furnace down uh, in the middle of a hot war and it's in the middle of the winter, you're gonna get panic. And uh, so 
we just have to pay attention to those kinds of things. And I, I don't really like raising the flag or selling what we do by, by fear. The, the point is, is we can prevent this and we should. Yeah, and you bring up a good point that it's, it's the sort of innocuous landing of code that's, the, it's only when it's exploited does it become a real true threat, like an active threat. And we saw that with the Mirai botnet was a great example yes. where it ultimately just, it, there was widely implemented, you know, uh, code that was out there living for, and forget what the time frame was for how long it had been active. And then only then at the point where it became an active exploit, then suddenly we realized, and then like you said, what's the issue? Well, now you suddenly have physical hardware, firmware at best, that is ultimately needs to be. So you can't just go in and, and quickly drop in a, a fix. Like you had to flash firmware for devices which are asynchronously connected. So they don't have a persistent management pattern. And it really becomes just the, the pattern of operations in, in IoT is so fundamentally different than what we treat as like patch management in, in traditional online systems. So it's the it, like, same thing, ultimately the, the Difficulty is exponential in how quickly it can get out of hand. Yeah, it, it absolutely can. And there's, um, you know, uh, some time ago I read an article uh, about people who steal cars. And uh, it stated, uh, you know, uh, what happens if you put one of the mechanical devices on your steering wheel, a club, and you hook that up to your car? Does it really thwart uh, theft of the car? Well, the study showed that the difference between not having a club and a club was 60 seconds that it took the car thief to, uh, to steal the car. But the point became that if someone saw a club on that car, they're likely gonna just pass the car by because 60 seconds means everything in terms of the time that uh, they could get caught. It dramatically increases the risk. Even, even criminals, uh, Pay attention to corporate risk, um, and and so uh, when we look at this, anything that we can start to do is good. It's, people can put a username and password, but you and I could go out onto the dark web today and buy an illicit program that we could get through a username and password in ten seconds. Um, these, so so we just have to be really smart about how we do this. What real security is what what layers of security we need, which is really the ultimate form of security is to layer various things uh, to create a, a more secure nature. And if we can do that, then, then we start to uh, make progress on protecting our data, personal data, as well as uh, a corporate and government data. You, you also talk about perfect analogies. So the club is a great example, right? That we, we as consumers and, and let's say the enterprise consumer being of their current security toolkit, they, they look at this and they say, ah, here's a good sort of mitigation strategy. And it really is nothing more than that. It's actually not security, it's mitigation. Because to a good car thief and having not worked in police services for a few years, and they said, you, people say, well, you can't saw through a club you know, because it's, you know, layered steel with aluminum core, it will heat up. This, it's all this thing. They said, you don't saw through the club, you saw through the steering wheel. It takes, like, that's, you don't need the steering wheel to be whole to drive it away. So all you got to do is get the club off. So it's, it's funny that as the exploiter, 
of that security. I look for the fastest, shortest path. And, but to the consumer of this wildly popular selling item because it's a, a sort of sense that we're doing something. Right. Very effective in most cases, like you said. It's not that it didn't work, but in those extreme cases, especially when you're looking at you know, global scale, country scale, you know, societal scale, bad actors and, and, and large, like I said, this is, this is the new sort of cold war is being held in a digital, digital, you know, battlefield right now. Yep. Exactly right. Exactly right. So what we tried to do as a firm is look at that and say, what creates the biggest, the strongest security we can find. And, these IoT devices can't run the security that's on your smartphone because the, the uh, processors on those small IoT devices are not large enough to handle the processing of the encryption that you have. The encryption we have on our smartphones has been around for over 20 years. Um, I think it's safe to say that computing form factors and computing have changed dramatically in 20 years. A couple of small updates have come along the way, right? <laughs> encryption hasn't. And uh, so we looked at that and said, how do we get this done? There's this massive hole that, uh, that is where data is being stolen every day. And by the way, uh, infiltration into corporate sites and personal sites and so forth has increased 3x each of the last three years. Um, and it's largely because they're coming through these IoT devices and then writing the data upstream or figuring out how to get into, into corporate databases from there. And there's various methods that can be used to start to thwart that, but the data in transit never gets secured on those IoT devices. We looked at that and created a system that can do it. And we've got brilliant people here that we all get up in the morning and think about how much data is being lost. And we say, let's go stop it. And, and so we drive forward to stop that data loss and theft for you and for me and for our government and for everybody that we can. So now we've engaged in uh, accounts and discussions with our federal government um, where we're being used. We've engaged in uh, uh, um, corporate systems and uh, we're starting to see the upswing and growth of what we're doing. A little bit, it took a little bit of time of pushing the string uphill to get people to understand why they needed to use our product. That is really the nature and I've done it a few times with a few products of an emerging product in an emerging company that's in an emerging market. Uh, it's education, 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 and you have to teach people why this may be necessary and what can be done about it. And it's a perfect lead-in because I, I look at the stuff that you've, you've done and uh, you're number one, you're very civic-minded in your approach to things. And I look over your history and you've definitely, you have a very, focused view on being able to solve large problems for the greater good like how paul that's not a it's not an easy thing for people to take on when did you when did you sort of feel inside that you you had the potential to affect a greater good in in the way that you've done in in some of the, the companies you've worked with oh so the greater good i'm going to separate the two things that you mentioned there um the first being the greater good that without a doubt came from my upbringing on a, uh, on a farm, a cattle ranch and a potato farm in Idaho. Uh, we helped each other. We helped our neighbors. We did everything we could. Uh, uh, I've mentioned this uh, times in the past that 
I remember my dad getting me up in the middle of the night when I was about seven or eight years old and throwing my brother and me in the truck and we went down a mile to my neighbor's farm and the the haystack had started on fire and it was now burning the barn and and my brother was on a tractor and they were hooking up to implements trying to pull them out of the barn so they wouldn't be destroyed they're getting the animals out my job was at seven years old was to take a, a hose at the house and keep the roof wet so that the embers wouldn't flow flow over and start the house on fire um, those kinds of community values get instilled in you when you're very young and that's undoubtedly where that comes from and and I've tried to do that uh, through my life and sometimes I haven't done it as much as I could, but I try. How do we get uh, to looking at big projects and how do we have a variety of different uh, startups that could really have major sea change in our world? That has a lot less to do with me than it does the people who invented the technology. I'm not a technologist. I, I don't have a degree in those kinds of things. I have, you know, my studies in college were political science with some business classes, but that typically causes people to uh, distrust me instantly when I talk. <laughs> but, um, but we, you know, uh, what I did learn was strategy. So if I can take a group of people who have invented something and help focus the strategy in the right place and put some capital behind it and, uh, and then rely upon people who really have the knowledge technologically and get out of their way, then things happen. So that's a lot less about uh, me than it is about really, really good people and uh, enabling them to do what they do best. Uh, you've also, you've, you've generally really touched in on companies and helped companies through those, those very early phases and the growth phases. And like you said, emerging market, emerging product, emerging problems. And the, like any one of those three could bury most companies. And you seem to just sort of, okay, we got this. Like, how do you, how do you look at a, at a group of people and, and assess what it is they have and then see this breadth of the, really it's a difficulty in what they're about to face as a business and how do you identify this is the thing that I know I can, I can help these folks get to the next level? So um, it's all about people and it's all about helping people uh, uh, do a couple of things. One is to see the vision. Um, so we talk a lot internally about what is our vision? Where do we go with this? Now, reality has to meet vision at some point, but to, but to make sure that everybody has, everybody sees the big picture, and they perform their individual functions to hit the target on the big picture is, uh, is a critical thing inside of a company. So typically because my strong expertise is in, is in finance, but also in, um, in strategy, I typically can see the big picture out where we need to go and then kind of envision the steps to get there. So setting that vision with people, helping them understand it, asking for their input is, is really, really critical. The second is transparency. So I find uh, some people espouse the management principles and if it works for them, that's great. But management principle that, you know, don't, don't ever tell your crew that things aren't good, that we've got problems here or there. 
just keep them pumped up and going. And, and I find the opposite is true. Total transparency, helping the troops understand we've got challenges where this isn't working. This needs to work better. We've got challenges with capital or we've got challenges with, uh, with markets and, uh, uh, are we chasing the right market? Doing self-assessments, uh, getting involved and really looking at every aspect of your business at times is critical. Um, and, and if you don't do that, you can get locked into, um, you know, writing and believing your own press releases, so to speak. Uh, you, you just, uh, you know, and, and there's a certain amount of uh, of that that you have to do. You have to believe in that vision and you have to sell that vision along with your product. But transparency among the troops is just absolutely critical because it creates trust. And the third thing is, and this one's hard to do, but it's really critical. And that is we have to avoid doing things and set the culture that we try to avoid doing things that don't matter. Uh, I, I many, many times teach the principle internally that there is no value in doing well that which we should not be doing at all and um, that is really true especially in startups because every hour taken on something that that is really cool and we did it really well but it doesn't matter is an hour taken away from progress and process and prosperity and that is revenue and, and profits and uh, getting and being able to change the world as you go out. So those are a couple of principles I think that really, uh, really come to mind about how to get people focused and keep them focused uh, in, a, in a difficult environment. Well, you've actually got a very, I say unique because it's, it's, a, uh, it's not common for somebody who has your understanding of the impact of transparency and the ability to bring that into an organization, but to also do it in a way that is also, I, I believe very, you know, civil and civic in how you bring this. And I, I use those words just, you know, cause we kind of brought it up in the past for the background, because there's a difference between the idea of radical transparency as a practice, which I a hundred percent believe in, but there's also the way in which you're conveying transparency is different. Uh, and a, a famous one, uh, uh, Ray Dalio of Bridgewater Capital is a book called Principles. And, and their firm is, is run on this idea of, of radical candor and radical transparency. And it's fantastic. However, some people also believe that is a license to just say whatever they feel and not think about the impact of the way in which they've stated it. So how do you balance the way that you say things, but yet not, you know, it's not lying, but like we, we just as humans, we are born to want people to not be hurt by the things we say, but we know sometimes we have to say tough things. Yeah. So that happens. People are different. People are brought up different people. Uh, uh, approach things in a very, very different way. But we do a couple of things that makes, I don't want to say makes, it offers the opportunity for people to learn how to interface with others uh, in a way that uh, is meaningful. Uh, we hold a weekly book club in, in our company. Now we're small and we can have 100% of our employees on that book club. So we 
take a book like this one that, uh, that we're going through now, Start With Why, by Simon Sinek, and we assign a chapter to a different employee in a 20-minute stand-up meeting every week, they present a chapter or a few pages of a chapter, whatever it may be, and they teach the principles in that. So every person has to think, how am I going to teach this to the whole company? Do we do this well? Can we change? And they present candid assessment. You know, we're not doing this well. We're really bad at this. And they have to think through that. So it, it allows people the opportunity to think about how to present their thoughts and present them in a way that the company will understand and that the company that will help move the company forward. And that's what we encourage. The second thing is if somebody says something that is offensive and says it in an offensive way, we try to teach that as employees, you can do one of two things. You, yes, you can come to management and say, this happened and I absolutely didn't like it. And sometimes there are things that we need to do that way. But for the most part, the best thing is if that employee sits down with the offending employee and says, could I just ask you to maybe phrase that a little differently next time because this is the way it came off. That creates trust among employees. And so we try to encourage that. Does it always happen? No. Is it, I mean, it's a constant process, but we try to at least teach it. And uh, the combination of those things help us to try to create uh, an environment where people can be full of candor and, and uh, constantly, um, constantly saying what needs to be said without saying it in an offensive way. Well, as a style too, it, it's interesting that you've been able to do this as both an active and a distributed sort of management style that you're really empowering people. Even the, like the book club, lots of companies are like, oh yeah, we've got a book club too. They hand out, here's a great book to read. And then that's, that's it. Effectively, it's just, it's homework that you never check. And they assume that people are going to and be on board with it. But I really do like that you truly make it an interactive and active thing, but yet you distribute the power of the moment and the reason to everyone else. So they ultimately are in charge of the outcome and they will feel empowered because of that versus you know, quizzing, you know, sending out a survey monkey and quizzing every employee. Do you believe this, you know, is, how would you answer this question regarding the book you just read? I really do like that, that feedback loop that you create amongst the, the team. It seems to work. And, and, you know, it kind of cuts back to the whole principle that there's just going to be garbage happen no matter what. Uh, we can't control it. Anybody who doesn't believe that just needs to, to stop for a second and look at 2020. I mean, <laughs> yeah, true. I mean you know, what I, I, I'm not going to say what else can happen this year because it'll happen. Uh, it's just a very interesting time. I remember, so I spent a period of time full-time in politics in my life, and I was uh, doing what's called advance work for, um, for a president uh, of the United States, happened to be president, uh, the first President Bush, H.W. Bush. And we were in a motorcade, and we were headed down the road, and uh, the motorcade has a certain... Uh, level set up to protect the president's limousine. And there, there's a car behind the limousine that is charged. If somebody's headed for the limousine, you got to take them off the road because you don't know what's going to happen. Well, the police were at uh, intersections and one of the policemen got caught up in seeing the motorcade coming and let a car by and it was coming straight towards the motorcade. And this car zoomed out, Secret Service, 
and the guys were hanging out and they were pointing, get off the road, get off the road, get off the road. And finally, this car veered off the road and down into the gutter and uh, it was more on a country road. And we went past, as we went past, I looked over and I saw that it was a gray haired lady. And I thought, oh my gosh, she is gonna be scared to death. And uh, we zoomed past and went to our location and so I started calling back uh, to the police and saying, is this woman okay? And they said, she's really shook up. She didn't know what happened. It was a fault of our police. Well, um, at that point, um, I invited her, I invited the police. I said, would you escort her over to the venue where we are? The president would like to apologize. And I went to the president and said, here's what happened. And he said, boy, get her over here right now. We brought her over and she was so worried because she didn't have her hair fixed and she wasn't in the right dress and all of these kinds of things. <laughs> but when she got there, he put his arm around her and he told her how sorry he was that sometimes these things happen, but it was not meant to. And he felt so bad. And was she okay? And what could we do to help her? And so forth. I found out later that he sent some flowers to her later uh, to just apologize again. I never saw somebody became, become such a staunch advocate of uh, President Bush is that woman. So garbage happens, but you got to figure out how to take garbage and turn it to your advantage. And uh, that's exactly what he did in that case. And, uh, and that's what we try to at least look at is when things are bad, what do we do to turn this around? Yeah, it's very impactful. And, uh, you know, so how, what, what goes through your mind because there are decisions that you as the CEO as a leader need to make sometimes which are going to have a, a challenging impact right how how do you approach that situation we have let's say like a downsizing or if there's a financial difficulty and you know you have to make some difficult decisions and and put them into play like how do you how do you think about that and and then bring it to your team um, I don't have to think about it because policy and the process is already in place. We use it all the time. People know if I'm coming to them with a difficult uh, situation, I've already started to prep them for it. I've already told them. Now, that goes against some convention that uh, if you do that, people start looking for jobs, even if they don't need to be and all of that kind of thing. But I understand that if somebody really feels insecure, then um, than they need to. Most times I find that what it does is causes them to double down and say, okay, let's see what we can do to help. Sometimes it doesn't, but I would rather be on that side of it and have people see what's coming so that if there's truly bad news, a downsizing, a layoff, a furlough, uh, challenges uh, in a COVID environment where uh, uh, new revenues get forestalled, which has happened to us, uh, and until next year or all kinds of other things, um, people see it. We just lost our audio for a second there. Yeah. You okay? Okay. Have you got? Oh, there we go. Sorry. You just came back there. <laughs> oh, no. It's uh, where we lost your microphone again for some reason. Oh, really? There we go. Now okay. it's weird. It's just for, it would just cut out for a second. Oh, interesting. Sorry. Now you're good. Now you're good. Huh? I did get a sign that just said my internet is unstable. Sorry, let me. Oh, just... that was why. Okay, sorry about that. Yeah. The downside to uh, internet uh, recordings. Unfortunately, we face this battle occasionally. <laughs> oh, sorry. Normally, we have a really good signal here. Can you okay. hear me now? 
Yeah, we're, we're good. Happens to the best of us. I, uh, this is always the fun of doing these in, in a remote world. Uh, the, it's actually quite good that we're able to, and I think as an, an organization too, you've probably experienced this where we, we really love the idea that you can be very much physically in front of people and the nonverbals are powerful in the way that like you talked about, like when we want to present a difficult thing, they are already aware and they can see it in you that like you're, they, they, there's a real true human detection of what you're trying to get done. And like you said, the policy and the process being in place, they get why we've got to have this conversation. Um, so yeah, it's funny that when we get into these remote situations now, video has been a fantastic boon for remote workers because it allows us to at least get a little bit closer to you know that feeling the emotion of of the conversation versus just being on a call and and you know sort of which a lot of people are just waiting for their time to talk <laughs> now that's true that's true but if we have a situation where we at least try to be candid 100 percent of the time then surprises are not typically surprises people know things are coming and and they're willing to work with us uh in ways that uh that they may not be if we sprung surprises on them. If you, when you bring leaders up into your organization, what, what are qualities and sort of maybe backgrounds that you actively look for to know that they will be effective leaders in that style that you embrace? So the first is uh, their ability and willingness to communicate. Um, are they good at communicating? So, um, there's a principle uh, that I try to adhere to, and that is if we've got a hiccup or we've got something that's not working well inside of our company, it's not the employee's fault. I know some corporations like to just downsize and get rid of uh, employees and keep management around and so forth. I tell my management all the time, if there's a problem, it's our fault. It's not theirs because we either, uh, and, and there's a reason for that because the second thing is I try to find people who, uh, understand the power of process. So to me, the three most critical creators of value in this order are process, process, and process. And that goes to everything. So if we have a process in place for how we pay bills, and it happens every month and happens on time, then we create a checklist and say, do this and this and this and this. And then if somebody wins the lottery and they go off and uh, live their life and leave us tomorrow, we've got a process for somebody to follow. Um, that's how you get quality in any product, whether it's manufactured or whether it's programmed. Um, so if I can find people who understand process and put them in place and adhere to processes, then there should only be a couple of reasons for a failure or uh, a hiccup in a company. And that is one, our process was flawed and we need to revise the process. Or two, we didn't train the process well enough. So if there's things that are difficult inside the company, I look to management and say, what was our process? What happened with it? Did we train it well enough? And if we did, we've got to improve the process. Most often, it's because we didn't take the time to train employees uh, on the process. I'm such a believer that 99.9% .9 of people just want to suit up and show up and do the best job they can at a job and participate to the, to the overall good of the company. That's our responsibility from a management standpoint or a leadership standpoint 
to help train them to make that a reality. And so working on processes, training processes, adhering to processes is really critical. Yeah, you can't tell somebody they're not doing the right thing if you haven't told them the thing they should be doing and it isn't obvious and available that they can know where what the map was they should have been on before you told them that they were off the road. Yeah, yeah, exactly right, exactly right. If you look at it, it being that you've, you've been in the industry for a while and you've probably watched a lot of folks come up through different management styles, you've seen sort of paradigm shifts and shifts in the, in the ways that whatever the business book du, du jour is, you know, what are, what are some of the management, if you could take a management book off the shelf because you, you feel like we're reading the wrong thing, you know, what are some stuff, what are some things that you see out there, Paul, that you see, you have concern over that we need to, they, they aren't relevant anymore. And, and yet we still find them, you know, present in, in kind of the way uh, new leaders are coming up. Well, I know that this is an interesting thing in today's uh, environment around our country, but Abraham Lincoln said we should be too, too big to take offense and too noble to give it. And uh, that is a critical principle that I think you know, that lends to the whole issue of transparency and so forth. And we should adhere to that. Uh, you know, uh, you, you cannot offend me because I would have to let you. Um, I would just look at someone who, who said something that others may interpret as offensive. And I would think, okay, what are they trying to teach me or tell me or what's happening in their life that I can maybe help with that uh, led to such a visceral response. Uh, so that's one. Another, and, and, and I don't think there's a business book that I've ever read. I've learned so much from a lot of them, but there is not a definitive business book out there. There just isn't because systems, cultures, uh, politics, uh, finances, even pandemics are fluid. And, uh, and we have to change to adapt to those. So, so um, I've found that character trumps skill. Um, Skills are very, very important, but somebody who has all the skills in the world, but, but no solid character of uh, ethics and truth and transparency doesn't cause a company to go forward. So yes, we have to look for skills and we look for the best people we can find, but they also have to meet a criteria of uh, character. Um, I think uh, you also have to adopt a culture that uh, zero defect, uh, uh, Culture internally is not a goal, but it's the very core of what you do. It, you have to have quality. You have to have a zero defect culture and work for it. Um, I think uh, sometimes when there are problems that arise, we try to ascertain motive because motive becomes more important than the behavior itself. Was there somebody who was truly trying to hurt uh, someone else inside the company emotionally or mentally or physically, uh, we have to determine the motive. Um, so often uh, personal situations crop up. Nobody wants to say, say anything about that, but it drives their behavior. And uh, if there's something we can do to help uh, without being intrusive or to get them to someone who can help, um, it could change their life. And uh, yes, we can't always allow that kind of thing to drive the culture of a company. We sometimes have to make decisions, but uh, 
but we at least try to look uh, at those kinds of things. And then the other thing that I've seen over and over and over again in business is companies that innovate brand new products and they try to sell it with a business model that is different from what people have used in the past. And I'm not saying that finance can't evolve, but the principle is, is that we should never, ever, ever make it hard for another company or customer to give us their money. Uh, we should figure out accounting systems and business uh, models and, and uh, processes that allow people to be able to easily give us their money and, uh, and we thank them for that and we try to work into their systems and never make it hard to do business uh, with. That's sometimes hard. Um, I've seen it over and over again, but we, we try to at least think about that and uh, make those kinds of things uh, simple and easy and straightforward for people to do business with us. And I think the last thing that I would uh, just state is that Oftentimes we think about juice, doing anything we can to juice revenue and profits, but for taking care of other people's money when you're venture funded, um, de-risking the business is as important as growing the business. So we constantly look at what are our risks and how do we de-risk, uh, knowing that there are going to be uh, years like 2020 when a lot of things are going to be out of our control. Uh, how do we de-risk that business? How do we how do we make sure that we could survive in a very difficult environment? And uh, those, are, those are just a handful, maybe off the top of my head, uh, business principles that I've read about, learned about, and observed that uh, really, really have an impact on a business. Well, and you're, you've raised context is, is such an important thing. And, and even when you talked about if somebody were to, you know, be by, offended by a thing that you said or a way in which you said it, that your, your immediate thought was, what is a thing that may be going on in their own personal situation, which could have affected how they took that in? And that is, you know, today we talk about empathy being such a strong part of the conversation, especially in leadership. And it's, we, we haven't used that word yet, which is amazing because you've actually exhibited it. You've shown it without putting it as a placard behind the, you know, the front desk said we are a company of empathy, which unfortunately people use it as a kind of a, a cudgel of like, see, we're empathetic. And then they make horrifyingly bad decisions and don't actually, like you said, go from vision to execution. And it's, it, it's, it's vision to behavior in the way that you approach that. And, and I can definitely tell that it's, that will move its way through the organization by the leaders that you would bring in to help to guide that rest of the organization. Yeah, someone once told me that the first sign that a particular principle of building culture isn't existing in an office is when you see it posted on every wall and on everybody's desk. <laughs> um, you know, because it, culture and those kinds of principles are things you live, not things you post. Now, it's okay to post them. I'm not against that. I mean, we have some values posted on our wall and other things too, but they're, they're just there as things to remind people uh, of a variety of things that we need to be thinking through. But, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's very, very true. I mean, I can think back to a situation some time ago where uh, we had an employee who was really um, not performing well and very angry and very upset and, uh, and so forth. And uh, so, we stopped and said, how do we find out what we can do to help? And we stopped saying, 
stop doing this. You can't do this. It violates our process. It violates our policy or whatever. And we, we finally started saying, how can we help you? What's, what's going on in your life? Uh, is there anything that you can share that, uh, or would like to share? And when she finally just said, you know what? My mother is deeply ill. I'm an only child and she has no one around her and I'm so worried about her all day. I don't know what to do. Well, she was in a job that we could send her off, work from her mother's home and be with her mother and help her. And wow, what a transformation in that woman. I mean, it was just a huge transformation. She was afraid to say anything, afraid that she'd be replaced. She'd lose her job, couldn't support her mother. Uh, yet she was worried about her mother. Well, those are the kinds of things, how, you know, we just need to sometimes ask questions or send someone to somebody that they can confide in that can help them through some difficulties. It's, it's very important and, and definitely uh, it's, we need more of that for sure. Another thing that we talked about context was, and I, I asked that business book question of, of people quite often sometimes because there's stuff that, you know, ironically enough is very rooted in history that still carries forward. I mean, one of the most popular sales books ever, of course, is How to Win Friends and Influence People. Dale Carnegie uh, originally penned it in, uh, I think it was around 1919. So it's, it's got some lasting power. But then the funny thing is, if you don't take the con, like that is without context, it doesn't need a time frame. It's sort of very strong principles that work to this day. And then there was other ones, which are a great example is Built to Last. It was a, a book that was it's widely read and, and widely studied, but was often put upon because the companies of the, you know, seven companies that are highlighted in the book, four of them have almost went under. Uh, and, but the context of the study of the book was correct and the period of time after with which it was still true, also correct. It's very easy for us to go 10 years later and say, well, look, HPE didn't make it or HP, you know, became a, a different version of itself. And it's like, I, I can't fault the author or the researchers that actually put that time in at the time. If I apply context to conversation and principle and then take a look at the overarching vision of what we were trying to achieve by writing this book and creating this research, that is the the bigger picture like i think without vision you can't have execution and without context you can't have any of it because it really really is very situational so it's uh i'd say sorry that's more of a statement than a question but you know it was funny that when you brought up like there's the, most stuff is true and it has to be given the right context and the right understanding of of how people will yeah. take it in yeah, exactly. And, and I would be really uncomfortable if, uh, if I didn't say this, and that is that I fail sometimes. We don't do all of the things that I'm talking about. We do try to focus on them, but I'm sure there are people in our companies now or in the past who have really thought I was uh, not a good person or that I did something that, was, uh, that I was a jerk for or uh, those kinds of things. Sometimes we have to push people. We have to push people in certain directions. But it is easier if they know that you're just being transparent and they are looking at it and saying, he must be under a lot of pressure to perform for investors and other people uh, to get us to a certain point. Um, it becomes easier at that. And, and, and I, I'm a flawed human being. I, I make mistakes all the time as well. And I, I just, I don't want to purport that, uh, that we are 
perfect uh, organizations or anything around it. What we do is try to think about these things and at least respond in appropriate ways. There's a constant thing we talk about and that is do the right thing. Always do the right thing. Well, you're in the same way that you aimed that hose at the roof and a family gathered around and was dealing with a situation that you knew there was not a positive outcome to, you need to make it as positive as possible. And I think that's business, right? It is not all sunshine and roses. And, and, and so you do have to have that understanding that it's going to be tough and there's going to be things that will happen that are unforeseen, that are not taken, you know, no matter how you apply context to it, people won't understand. Uh, like I said, financial, this year's a great example. How many businesses are, even with the strength of their, their balance sheet leading into you know, the spring of this year, could not have been prepared for an entire shift in how the world will behave. So no matter how good they were now, they have to make really difficult decisions and think long-term in short-term execution. It's a really challenging thing when you have, and that's the fire, right? That is it. Like we, I know what we really want to get out of this, but I know right now I've got a very big thing that I've got to, to, to do a small thing for, and hopefully it'll have a big effect. It's really well said. That's really well said. And if we all pull together, we get there. There will be casualties along the way. There will be businesses that don't make it. There will be decisions made not to reinvest and fund companies, and it will cause good technologies and good people to uh, have bad days. Um, but, you know, uh, I just really think that we should be, and I'll use your word, I really think we should be in a situation to be empathetic towards others because even though we may be on top of it today, um, the clock may tick and 2019 will turn into 2020 and then all of a sudden all hell breaks loose. So uh, we got to be aware of that and know that uh, as much as we can, we support one another and still keep focused on our jobs. So I'll ask one thing in closing, Paul, and thank you again. It's been amazing, uh, really great, great learning experience and conversation. If you could take every one of your leaders or any one of your staff and Tell, put them in a place for 30 days that you believe would be a real building experience for them. What's, a, what's an activity that you would recommend people? You know, let's take all, con like, take money, take whatever. Like if you said, like your, your time on a farm, things like that, what, what's a thing that you believe could be formative and changing to really bring this empowerment to people? Probably... Uh take them out of here and put them in a third world country where they could observe um, children coming up whose legs are as big as a toothpick because they are just hungry. Uh, where in the middle of the night, babies are dropped off on the front doorstep of an orphanage because people can't take care of them and they're just trying to find a way for that baby to survive. And I would, uh, I would put them uh, in a place where they could observe and see how much uh, sickness and illness can really devastate uh, a, a culture. Uh, and I would uh, put them in an environment where they could perhaps see uh, 
what political oppression can do uh, to peoples and cultures and lives on a regular basis uh, simply for the fact of maintaining power uh, so that people could really see that there's a different world. And I know many people have seen that. But as a culture, if we could drop all of us at once without having to worry about business for 30 days, I'd want them to see that and then participate in just a think tank and an action uh, plan to see how we could make one small dent in a little tiny uh, way to build humanity and to uh, change, change a situation to make someone else's life better. Because when that exercise was over, we would walk back into our jobs and we'd look at it and say, what we do every single day to try to protect digital data and to stop people from hacking into those IoT devices, stop people from stealing data off those IoT devices and to be able to secure that long into the future, it makes that just a little bit more meaningful. We are helping to secure data that can be used to better people's lives somewhere down the road. And uh, that, that would probably be my, my 30 day project that I would uh, put everyone in. Well, and that's really empowering. Like you said, just give them, give them a view of what the real effect is and that's like the secondary and tertiary effects of what we do. And like I said, I look at, at what, what you and the Agile PQ team are doing. It's, this is a difficult problem. And we are only now starting to really see the surfacing of, of the effect of it and the awareness of it, which is nice uh, that hopefully, you know, as we grow awareness, but just like with many things that are at the scale and at the breadth of what you're, the challenge you're taking on, there's is an iceberg of existence of, of difficulty that's already being faced. And then, so that little tiny top piece that, that everybody says, you know, when it makes the news, like I said, if you say Mirai botnet, a lot of people who no idea what PCs are or, or what IOT really means, but they've it, at the time when that was going on, they felt that effect, they understood it. And if you can do that in a way where you can have someone come to work and say, this is what you're doing here, allow somebody else to do something amazing and let's do amazing things together. Yeah. Very well summarized. Exactly. Well, this has been fantastic, Paul. Thank you very much. And if, if people wanted to connect with you and reach out, uh, I'll of course have links to, uh, to, to the website and, and uh, what's the best way if people did want to get in contact with you, Paul. So the website is just uh, really easy. We monitor that of course, uh, all the time. Um, our, Email addresses are all our first initial last name at agilepq.com. So very easy to find us and uh, connect with us. And uh, we welcome anyone that would like to explore how we can work together to, to uh, provide security and make the world better. It is a, it is a, a, a heck of a mission. And I'm, I'm glad to have been able to share the last hour with you and, and talk about it and much more. And so I, I steered us to a lot of interesting directions just because I think it's, it's you know, there, there's much more to, to Paul Clayson than your, your today would indicate. And, and thank you for sharing a lot of your story with us. Of course, uh, anytime. Um, would just ask uh, that, uh, in, in, as, as everyone listens to this, the one problem that I do have 
is uh, my hair went away many years ago. If you can figure out how I can get it back, I'm all ears. So you can't see, but they can imagine it. So there's a a startup opportunity out there somewhere. And I'm ready uh, for it. I'm ready for it. So uh, Cy Furling hasn't figured it out yet. So I, I, we're, we're still trying though. We're trying (laughs) after it. It's a world problem. Um, (laughs) Listen, thank you so much. And thanks for your very insightful questions and for, uh, allowing us to spend some time with you. Thank you. Thank you.